Well, our first series here in the Gospel of Matthew, we're calling The First Coming of King Jesus. And if the Lord allows, this series will have its second to last message on Christmas Eve and the final message in Matthew 4 on Christmas Day, which falls on the Lord's Day this year. We will enjoy a time of worship together to really do the greatest thing you can do on Christmas Day, and that is to gather together to celebrate Christ. And I don't know why any believer wouldn't do that to say, I'm sorry, on Christmas I don't have time for Christ. That doesn't make sense. I I love the years when the Lord's Day falls on Christmas Day, and so we'll finish Matthew 4 right on that day. I haven't mentioned this yet, but over the next couple of years, we're going to be doing 14 other series in the Gospel of Matthew. And so just for fun, after the first coming of King Jesus, beginning in January, we'll start a series in Matthew 5 called, the, called Joy in the Lord. We'll begin the Sermon on the Mount. Nine messages there. We'll do from chapter 5, verse 13, through chapter 6, verse 4, a series we're calling Authentic Christianity. Nine messages there. Chapter 6, How to Pray in Power. Ten messages on prayer. Chapter 7, my favorite title, Warning Signs on Hell's Highway. Warnings to Genuine Faith. Chapters 8 and 9, we're going to do what I'll call a preview of Christ's kingdom, miracles and works of Christ. We'll do a series called The King's Ambassadors. We're going to do 13 messages in chapters 9 and 10 on the apostles and lessons we can learn from them. We're going to do a series called How to Avoid God's Wrath. This is the section of Matthew that really begins the opposition to Jesus by the Jews. Ten messages in chapters 11 and 12. We'll do a series called The Mysteries of the Kingdom, some of the parables of Jesus to explain the kingdom of Christ to those who will hear seven messages in chapter 13. We'll do a series called Faith's Final Exam, 16 critical questions about saving faith, 16 messages from chapters 14 through first part of 17. We'll do a series called Kingdom Living Before the Kingdom, 15 messages in chapter 17 through 20, how to live for the kingdom before the kingdom comes. We'll do a series in chapters 21 through 23 called The Danger of Rejecting Christ. 14 messages. We'll do one I'm looking forward to, particularly the second coming of King Jesus. In chapters 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. 10 messages there. We'll do a series we'll call Pierced for Our Transgressions. 18 messages on the death and resurrection of Christ. And then we'll finish up the Gospel of Matthew with just five messages we're calling The King's Final Instructions. We have before us a journey that will be a a once-in-a-lifetime experience for us as a church to walk alongside Christ from the pre-birth announcements of Christ to the final instructions from Christ Himself after His resurrection. This is life-changing for you. It'll be life-changing for our church. Now, for the next number of weeks, we're going to be in some somewhat familiar territory. I've preached some of these passages even as recently as a couple of years ago. And we just looked at the virgin birth in the, at the Steadfast Bible Conference, but now we have the chance to set some of these passages into the larger context of Matthew as a whole. So I think it's going to be really enriching to us. And you can't ever really go through these too many times. And so I want to have us look today at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We'll finish chapter 1 today. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And so now we come to the New Testament text which connects the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 with the birth of Christ. 
And of course, the most shocking aspect of the Isaiah prophecy in, in Isaiah 7 is that Emmanuel, God with us, will be born of a virgin. That's the central feature of this text, the miraculous nature of the birth of Christ. Verse 18, Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, the angel says, the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. Verse 25, Joseph had no relations with his wife until she gave birth to a son. Now, for those of us who have been taught the Word of God, we believe the Word of God, the virgin birth of Christ is simply accepted and we believe it. Why? Because the Bible says so. But next to the resurrection of Christ, the most debated and controversial event in the life of Christ is the virgin birth. Many have tried to downplay this as a a secondary truth or an unimportant truth or a non-foundational truth. But Satan must think it's important because he's waged war on this belief from almost the very time of Christ himself. In the famous 2nd century work, Dialogue with Trypho, this recounts a series of debates between Justin, who was a philosopher who converted to Christ, and Trypho, a Jewish unbeliever. Trypho called Justin's belief in the pre-existence and the incarnation of Christ utter foolishness. But Justin appealed to Isaiah 7.14, the prophecy of Emmanuel, as speaking of Christ. The 2nd century pagan philosopher Celsus He denied the virgin birth and everything about Jesus that was miraculous. No no miracles for Jesus. Celsus wrote that Jesus was born because Mary had an affair with a Roman soldier and that Jesus' time in Egypt as a young boy was a time when he hired himself out as a servant because they were poor. But during that time, Jesus learned Egyptian magical arts and so he came back doing so-called miracles and by these tricks and and, uh, sleight of hand, he claimed to be God. And you would say, that's ridiculous. Well, the view of Celsus became widely known and believed and it even infiltrated into the church at times. By the mid-third century, the theologian Origen wrote a response called Against Celsus and he corrected the factual errors as well as appealing to Isaiah 7.14, again, the prophecy that Messiah would be born of a virgin. Both Justin and Origen regarded Matthew and Luke as inspired, as authoritative, and as accounts to be believed. The Apostles' Creed was constructed by great men of God, not by the Apostles, but it was constructed in about the 4th century to accurately and briefly explain the Christian faith. Now, I want you to notice how quickly the Creed gets to the virgin birth. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary immediately. It's that foundational. The Apostles' Creed jumps right to it. But the debate didn't stop there. We fast forward to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And once again, a battle over the virgin birth was raging. Liberal theologians who were questioning everything miraculous in the Bible, not to mention questioning the inerrancy of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, they were contesting the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. They said it was either unbelievable or unnecessary, or they would interpret it in a non-literal fashion. But those who held to the authority and the inspiration, the infallibility of Scripture, 
insisted, and rightly so, that the virgin birth was an essential belief for the Christian. Why? Because it guarantees the uniqueness and the deity of Christ. But the religious liberals, they they felt that, that this was simply taking a spiritual issue and making it only a biological issue. It really doesn't matter whether Jesus was born of a virgin or not. And in fact, the liberal of that day, which has now become normal, a normal thought in the dying mainline denominations, they felt that God was everywhere active, everywhere present, and works only through natural law, only through everyday processes. We would agree that God works providentially in this way, but they would deny that God works in miraculous, unexplainable ways, that everything has an explanation. Well, because of this split, this division of thought in both liberal and conservative circles in in Christianity, the virgin birth became a litmus test. Anyone who believed the virgin birth had no trouble accepting all the other miraculous events of of Scripture. In fact, it became so important that in ordination examinations for potential ministers of the gospel, the simple question of the virgin birth became a, a watershed question. Which way were you leaning? Do you question everything in Scripture? Are you a, a liberal, feel-good person that God is just a great person and, and, and God works all things through, through providence and doesn't really do anything miraculous and, and He'll help you most of the time? Or do you come down on the side of the Bible is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God and if it says Jesus was born of a virgin, then He was. And that was the one question that said, which side do you fall on? And so if you wanted to be a Methodist, you better fall on this side. And if you wanted to preach the word of God, you better fall on this side with one question. What do you think about the virgin birth? According to one study done just a few years ago, belief in the virgin birth of Christ is at its lowest point in Christian history now. Objections to the virgin birth abound. Here's a few samples. One objection is, well, the account of the virgin birth was just copied from mythology. That the, the writers, Matthew and Luke, they just made this up. They, they found this from other myths. Atheists have long gone to accounts of mythology of Egyptian, Greek, or Roman gods to look for some sort of loose parallel so that they can, quote-unquote, prove that Matthew and Luke simply copied mythology. For example, the Egyptian deity Horus is said to have been conceived by the virgin Isis, But this is a case of atheists looking for the one version of the story which fits their belief that Matthew and Luke copied mythology. But even according to non-Christian historians, the best Egyptian account of Horus is clear that that's not the case. One unbeliever writes this, there's no ancient evidence of any ancient narrative depicting Horus as being born of a virgin. The god Mithras is claimed by atheists to be described as born of a virgin, but the Roman version of this myth has Mithras as a full-grown adult miraculously being squirted out from the side of a rock. So I don't know how you make that sort of a, a, a parallel. One pair of scholars examined the five top candidates for Jesus being patterned after mythology. That if, if the virgin birth of Christ was patterned after mythology, these were the top five candidates that surely would must be And they found that in each instance, there's no resemblance to the virgin birth of Christ. So it's just a made-up objection. Another objection says, well, human logic says the virgin birth can't be true. 
Human logic says the virgin birth can't be true. The so-called search for the historical Jesus of the past several decades by, by scholars who are determined to prove that the gospel accounts are unreliable, it's given, it given us a shift in the basis for truth. And for them, truth is no longer about what the text of Scripture says, but about what the modern-day person can or cannot believe. That if the world as a whole cannot believe something, then it cannot be true. For example, the German theologian Rudolf Bultmann, in the early 20th century, he argued heavily that since modern humanity can't believe in miracles, then miracles can't be true. In fact, his big area was what he called the demythologizing of the Bible, re-explaining all the miraculous events with natural explanations. He held that the New Testament was simply the human account of the writer's encounter with God in Christ and that they were too ignorant really to explain anything in natural terms, so they used supernatural terms instead. That when Jesus fed uh, the 5,000, fed the 4,000, plus women and children, that there was some natural explanation, but the writers were too dumb to figure it out, so they just said, oh, he made it. And that they couldn't do any better than that. But Boltman refused to accept that the miraculous element of Scripture is at the core of the gospel. The Bible must be miraculous for the gospel to be true. By the way, Boltman sought to demythologize the resurrection of Christ also. That that was a myth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And basically, Boltman's goal, which is now taking hold in liberalism all over the world, is to make the Bible palatable to the so-called sophisticated modern mind as if those people living in Jesus' day were simpletons who couldn't understand anything. And so now human logic becomes the test of truth. Another objection. The virgin birth can't be true because of the contradictions in the Matthew and Luke accounts. The virgin birth can't be true because of the contradictions in the Matthew and Luke accounts. The simple answer to that is find me one. There aren't any. Why why would anybody say there's a, a contradiction? Matthew's gospel is about how Joseph found out about the virgin birth, the virgin conception. Luke's gospel is about how Mary found out about the virgin conception. That's the same story from two different perspectives. In fact, Joseph's encounter is after the conception of Christ. Mary's encounter is before the conception of Christ. So actually, far from providing contradictions, it provides all the angles to one cohesive story. This is one of my favorites. The virgin birth is a myth made up of, as part as, of Christianity's attempt to subdue women everywhere. The virgin birth is here to, because Christianity's goal is to subdue women everywhere. This was and is the view of feminist liberal Bible scholars. That's such an oxymoron, I can't even wrap my mind around it. But feminist liberal Bible scholars of the 20th century, now into this century, One of the most prominent was a 20th century Catholic feminist theologian, lesbian, I don't know how you put all that together, named Mary Daly. She held two doctorates. She taught at Boston College for 33 years. She describes herself, quote, as a radical lesbian feminist. She was adamant and she was extremely influential in her belief that the doctrines of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the fall of man, and the virgin birth are all myths that originate with a dominating patriarchy that just wants to steal power from women. 
And so for her, the story of the virgin birth isn't just unbelievable, it's wicked and evil because it's all about stealing power from women. I don't know about you, but if I'm Mary, I'm the coolest woman that's ever walked the planet. So Daly and others followed after her, came up with all kinds of theories. Mary was raped. Mary was an immoral woman. Mary was a harlot. Mary was a liar. But all these theories insist that Jesus had a human father from an illegitimate union. It's, it's horrible. So there's no lack of objections to the virgin birth. Those are just the most popular ones. The virgin birth is immensely important for our confidence concerning Christ because we are, after all, placing all bets on Him, right? Our very eternal destinies are placed in His hands, so He must be who He claims to be, or we are lost. We are without hope. And so I'd like to use our text this morning to just show you that the virgin birth gives us great confidence concerning Christ. We have tremendous confidence, and, and we want that confidence. We need that confidence, don't we? We all know that there will be a day. Some, some of you may know that your death is coming. Some of you may not. It may be a surprise. You, you may wake up one morning in heaven. And, Lord, what are you doing here? No, you're actually home. I don't know how that's going to work. But don't we need that assurance? We need to know that Christ is who he says he is, that when my heart beats for the last time and when the air is going out of my lungs for the last time and when my, 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 my brain is beginning to shut down, that my Savior will grab a hold of my hand and he will take me home to where he is. I need to know that that's who he is. And the virgin birth tells me that. So let me give you some ways that you can be confident in Christ. First of all, we have confidence in the sinlessness of Christ. Confidence in the sinlessness of Christ. I know we covered some of this at the Steadfast Bible Conference. I've never run across a Bible verse yet that I thought I was tired of, so I'm not going to be worried about that. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice that Matthew is describing something historic, something unheard of, something never before seen in the world. And he does it in one sentence. He, he doesn't try to prove his case. He doesn't say, here's 15 reasons why this is true. He just states the fact. The fact of the miraculous conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. If this story was made up or if it was uninspired, what is human habit? Human habit is to try to be more convincing, giving a list of witnesses, corroboration from family members. Well, you know, uh, Uncle Levi said that he, he believed the virgin birth. But the heavenly author, the Holy Spirit, merely states the fact of the conception of Christ in one sentence. We have here Mary. Mary was from a fairly poor family in Nazareth. She had a sister named Salome, she would be the mother of James and John, the apostles, and Jesus' first cousins. Many take the Luke chapter 3 genealogy as actually being the genealogy of Mary, even though Joseph is listed. If that's the case, then that tells us that Mary herself is descended down from King David, which would solidify Jesus' claim to the throne, not just legally through Joseph, but biologically through Mary. 
the Luke account of the angel of Gabriel announcing the coming conception and birth of Christ to, to Mary described her as godly and sensitive and a submissive young woman. She's probably in her early to middle teens. This would be normal marriage age at that time. So we have Mary. We also have Joseph. Joseph was a, a carpenter in Nazareth. It was most likely an arranged marriage between the, the two families. He would have been anywhere from several years to several decades older than Mary. Probably the several decades. Joseph was dead by the time Jesus was beginning his ministry. The couple was betrothed. This is much more formal than our engagement. How how do you break off an engagement in in our culture? You pretty much just take the ring off and throw it at the guy, right? And you're done. Being betrothed was formal and it was legal. And it took a divorce to undo a betrothal. It was a legal contract between the two families. The couple was now actually considered legally married, although the actual marriage ceremony hadn't taken place. It was basically a time of probation. Can you live as grown-ups? Can you handle the real-life adult responsibilities of marriage? It was a time of testing faithfulness. And generally speaking, the couple was separated from each other during pretty much the whole betrothal. Will you stay committed? If you're separated for a year or two, when you come together, will you still be committed? If you wait that long, you're committed. The end of verse 18 makes it very clear before they came together that when Mary became pregnant, it was prior to any sexual contact with Joseph. And this has major implications for the sinlessness, the perfection of Christ. Why is this? Well, it's because the virgin birth gives us certain knowledge that Jesus didn't inherit sin's curse from Adam. We need that knowledge. If Jesus had been conceived normally, or even a possibility existed that he was conceived normally, then this would call into question his sinlessness, which then calls into question his qualification to pay for our sins. Now, there's no scripture which says for certain that our sin nature is transmitted through our fathers, but we are certain that Adam, as the male head of all humanity, has been held responsible for the sin nature of all mankind. Romans 5.12 tells us this, "Sin, sin came into the world through one man. Now, someone might argue, well, Mary might have contributed to the tainted nature as the sinful human mother. As we mentioned at the conference, Catholics get around this by saying, well, uh, she was without sin, and so that's why Jesus is sinless. And of course, the, the, the logic taken to its extreme says, well, then Mary's parents had to be sinless, and then their parents had to be sinless. And then you go all the way back to saying that all of mankind is sinless. And even the Catholics don't believe that. But even if you find it doubtful that our sin nature is passed through our fathers, the angel promised Mary in Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It'll, It'll overwhelm you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy because of the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And if that's not enough, Jesus has always been holy God. Jesus is not created. And so is holy God. Nothing's going to taint him or make him sinful anyway. But the virgin birth assures us of that fact. We don't have to take God's word for it. The virgin birth tells us. We're assured by Hebrews 4.15, which says that Christ was without sin. We're assured by Hebrews 7.26 that he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. 
this is a major issue because if Jesus isn't sinless, then we have no mediator. We have no one who can speak to God on our behalf. We have no one to impute righteousness to us because now he's just like everyone else, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. And Jesus falls into that category. No, he has to be unique. He has to be sinless. And so the virgin birth gives us a, 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 a giant sigh of relief that there is a sinless man to stand in my stead before God. The virgin birth gives us confidence in the sinlessness of Christ. The virgin birth also gives us confidence in the nature of Christ. We give confidence in the nature of Christ. Verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The very first knowledge that Joseph had about this whole situation is that Mary was pregnant. And his only assumption could be is that she had been with another man because he knew it wasn't him. He knew it wasn't him, so obviously he couldn't marry her. But he was kind. He was gentle. He didn't want to humiliate her. He didn't want to subject her to a potential death penalty. So he took the way of resolving to divorce her quietly. But when the angel came to Joseph, I want you to notice the official title with which this humble carpenter is addressed. Joseph, son of David. That's like saying Joseph, son of kings. This official title. Joseph is the descendant of the great King David. And while he's not the biological father of Jesus, he would stand in as the legal father and he would be qualified. He would qualify Jesus as the Messiah King who was promised to David himself. And so Joseph is exhorted here not to fear to take Mary as his wife, what kind of fears could he have had? It could have been any a number of things. First of all, who's likely to be accused of being the, the, the man to impregnate her? He's at the top of the list. He could have been accused of unlawful behavior. He could have been a, a social outcast for marrying someone who, who's perceived to be a harlot. He could have been an outcast for marrying a woman who would prove unfaithful and ruin his life. How about having a child who's not his own? Any number of reasons that, that he could have been outcast from his society but the angel tells joseph not to fear for one very good reason the holy spirit has conceived this child in mary's womb and joseph is convinced and he obeys now the implications for the fact that jesus has a human mother and is conceived as a human being by god himself are very important for us because the the virgin birth tells us that the child is human and the child is god by the way, this is exactly the theological conclusion that even unbelievers came to. It was common theological knowledge that if you say God is your father, you're saying you are God. This is what the, the Jews in John 5.18 who were seeking to kill Jesus said, quote, because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so the virgin birth helps our understanding of the nature of Christ and since Satan continually works to denigrate the nature of Christ, to cause confusion and chaos around the nature of Christ, it's no surprise to us that the nature of Christ was a massive debate in the 4th and 5th centuries. In the 5th century, 
the prominent Alexandrian church began to refer to Mary as the Theotokos, the bearer of God, Theotokos. They were emphasizing that Jesus was fully God at his birth. But another prominent church, the church at Antioch, they objected to that term because they felt it emphasized the deity of Christ over and above his humanity. And it had a potential to create an overly high view of Mary. They were right on that account, by the way. And so, as we mentioned at the conference on that Friday night, a battle over the nature of Christ ensued, and it kind of came to a head at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Five to six hundred heads of churches met together in Chalcedon, and they were considering three basic positions. They were considering the position called the Eutychian position or Eutychianism, which says that Christ only has one nature. The nature, God uh, became flesh, became man, and is all lumped together in one nature. The second view is that Christ has two distinct natures that never meet. They're totally separate. A dual personality that sometimes Christ is man, sometimes Christ is God, called the Nestorian position after the theologian Nestorius. And then there was, as we mentioned, the middle position. This was offered by Leo, the bishop of the church at Rome. And the middle position would become the basis for the orthodox position that we hold to today. The pastors at Chalcedon overwhelmingly agreed with the middle position that this best represented the faith of the apostles and the teaching of Scripture. And so Chalcedonian Christology is what we hold to even today. It's our foundation. So what is this middle position? Well, very simply, Jesus is fully God and fully human. He's born of the Virgin Mary after miraculous conception, proving his nature as God and man. He has two distinct natures and one personality, and Christ is perfect in both. And we mentioned this is called by theologians the hypostatic union of Christ, that he's unified in divine and human natures in one person. The hypostatic union comes from a Greek word that just simply means his foundational self, his, his personhood. And so the hypostatic union is the the personal union of two natures of Christ in one being. And we read the whole creed. I won't do that for you this morning. But the Chalcedonian Creed says that the two natures operate without confusion, without change, without division or separation. I find that simple to understand and impossible to grasp. Kind of both at the same time. Now why is understanding the nature of Christ so very important? Let me give you several reasons. Understanding the nature of Christ, first of all, is important because it satisfies two God-given longings that you're built with. You have two God-given longings. The first longing you have is that the human heart will never be content with that which is merely human. We long for God. We long for the infinite. We long for something greater than ourselves. But at the same time, we long for human fellowship, don't we? We long for one another. We long for humanity. So in Christ, all of our God-given longings, our longings for the divine and our longings for the human, are met. So another reason the nature of Christ is important to us, Christ became the God-man for our sake. 1 John 4.14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son of God humbled Himself to become like us. 
Philippians 2.7 says, He took the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. And remember, we said this at the conference, the incarnation of Christ is all about Him relating to you. That's what it was for. So another reason this is important for us, Christ's nature provides a substitute for us. Philippians 2 goes on to say, speaking of this substitute, being found in human form, He humbled Himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So a perfect human would have to be the substitute sacrifice, a sinless human. And in the fallen world, the only way a a human can be sinless is if that human is also God. Christ's nature benefits us in one other way. It allows us to see God. What does the Bible say what happens to people who see God? They can't live. They can't live. The second person of the Trinity did not become the Son of God at His conception. The triune God has always been God the Father, always been God the Son, always been God the Spirit. John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He relates to God as His Father, when speaking of the glory he had in the eternity past, but now God has made himself manifest in human form so that you can see him, you can relate to him. And I know none of us have ever seen Christ yet, but the key word is yet. Do you realize that if you know Christ, every single one of you will meet him face to face? And I dare say we'll be able to do what Thomas did and place your hand in the scars. And to do what the children did and snuggle up to him, if I can use that word. He is a man that we can relate to. What a glorious gift. The invisible, almighty God who kills those who would dare approach him has become a man that we will literally share meals with. Confidence in the sinlessness of Christ, the nature of Christ. The virgin birth also gives us confidence in the work of Christ. Confidence in the work of Christ. Verse 21. And she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the English transliteration of the the Greek Iesus. Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. All of them mean the same thing. Yahweh will save. He's a saving God. Jesus would not only tell of God's salvation, He would be God's salvation for mankind. He came to provide what the Old Testament sacrificial system could never give, nor was it ever designed to give, permanent, forever forgiveness. Can you even grasp that? Can you grasp that every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit is and will always be forgiven? It'll be forgotten. It's, it's sunk to the bottom of the sea. It's, it's departing from us as far as east is from the west. What a gift. But the virgin birth helps us understand that this work of Christ was completely of God. It was all God's idea. It was God's impetus, God's action. Why does the virgin birth do this for us? Because the virgin birth emulates and illustrates God's saving work. That God is the sole worker of salvation. Let me illustrate this. There's no human effort. No human efforts possible. No human efforts possible or effective. The virgin birth is like our spiritual birth in three ways. First of all, the virgin birth is supernatural. 
just like our spiritual birth. John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that to be part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again, born of the Spirit of God. And he illustrates famously, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, you have a free will as soon as you can catch the wind. Just as Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, so was your regeneration. Your new heart was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth is like our spiritual birth. It's supernatural. There's a second way it's like it's undeserved. It's undeserved. No scripture tells us why God chose Mary. She did manifest qualities such as faithfulness and dedication, but she didn't have anything God needed. There's no record of women filling out applications to be the mother of Christ. There's no record of of God going to and fro and looking around for the best candidate. It just simply says he chose her. Mary was not sinless. In fact, in her inspired prayer song in Luke 1, Mary says in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary said she needed a Savior. She had no merits by which God chose her to be the mother of Jesus. And in the same way, our spiritual birth is undeserved, it's unmerited. And how familiar we are with Ephesians 2.9, which reminds us that our salvation is not the result of our good works, so that no one may boast. The virgin birth is like our spiritual birth in that it's supernatural, it's undeserved. There's a third way it's alike, it's sovereign. It's sovereign. No one gave God the idea of the virgin birth. Mary didn't meet God halfway. Mary didn't help God. Mary didn't say, hey God, here's an idea for you. She didn't assist God. She didn't, she didn't even give permission to God. She just found herself pregnant one day. He just chose her. Let me list all the reasons We know that God chose Mary. Moving right along. We don't know. Let me list all the reasons God chose you. There is one. Deuteronomy 7, Ephesians 1. In love. It's the only reason we get. So the virgin birth is like our spiritual birth. It's supernatural. It's undeserved. It's sovereign. How is this possible? Jesus said so. Matthew 19, 26. With man, this is impossible. Salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So what did the supernatural, undeserved, sovereign nature of the virgin birth do in Mary's heart? In her inspired song in Luke 1, she praises God in verse 49, For the Mighty One has done great things for me. And in the same way, the supernatural and undeserved sovereign nature of our salvation causes us to join with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Oh, what confidence we have in the sinlessness, the nature, the work of Christ. The virgin birth also gives us confidence in the revelation of Christ, the revealing of Christ. Verse 22 Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Some guy didn't just show up and say, 
I am the Messiah. We have confidence that Christ is who he says he is because of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And the virgin birth is attested strongly in the Bible. Isaiah 7.14 referenced here in this, these verses. The virgin birth is predicted of Emmanuel. Isaiah 8 verse 8 shows Emmanuel to be the owner and the ruler of Israel and by extension of the whole world. And in the New Testament, there are these two accounts of the virgin birth, Matthew 1 and Luke 1, but there are other texts which point to what can only be a virgin birth. John chapter 2 recalls the famous incident at the wedding in Cana, which Jesus turned water into wine miraculously. Now, how does that have anything to do with the virgin birth? This days-long wedding celebration had a problem. The host family had run out of wine. That's like having a dinner and running out of food. Mary went to Jesus about this problem and Jesus famously answered, Woman, that's not a sign of disrespect. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And like a good mother, Mary ignored her son and did what she wanted to anyway. Mary told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, why is this connected to the virgin birth? Mary had never seen Jesus do a miracle, but she had no problem believing he could do it. Why? Because she knew how he got here. A miraculous conception in her womb by the Holy Spirit of God. John chapter 8, Jesus answered the conceited men who were doubting him. He, He had told them, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father, meaning Satan. They answered him, Abraham is our father. John 8, beginning in verse 39, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In other words, you would be men of faith also. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works of your father did, that your father did. And then they really tried to zing him. They said this, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. What are they really saying? Unlike someone here whose father nobody really knows. This strongly implies that they knew of the claim that Jesus was virgin born. and They didn't believe it. Galatians 4 verse 4. God sent forth his son born of a woman. Now that might seem obvious. Born of a woman. We've all been born of a woman. Not in a Hebrew genealogy. Paul is proclaiming Jesus to be the fulfillment of the very first Prophecy of Messiah from Genesis 3.15, born of a woman. But in Jewish culture and in Scripture, a son was said to be born of his father. See also every single genealogy in the Bible. Paul says Jesus was born of a woman who was the father God sent forth his son. Now this is very important because to deny the virgin birth is to deny the inerrancy, the inspiration, the authority of Scripture which is to say that God wasn't smart enough, God wasn't powerful enough to accurately communicate with mankind. The virgin birth, attested so strongly in Scripture, gives us confidence in the revealing of Christ Jesus, the revelation of Christ, that everything else marvelous about Him as taught in the Bible is true as well. What confidence we have in the sinlessness, the nature, the work, the revelation of Christ, and The most obvious confidence we need to have is in the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. 
Now, God could have certainly still conceived miraculously the baby Jesus in Mary's womb. She could have had 10 kids first and then miraculously conceived Jesus. And so we would say that the virgin birth wasn't necessary for Jesus to be God, but the virgin birth was necessary for us to know that he's God. That proves it beyond the shadow of a doubt. And the virgin birth sets the tone for the theme of gospels of Matthew's gospel, a king from heaven. Because Matthew's gospel shows Jesus doing many things only God does. He's affirmed by God the Father as the Son of God, chapter 3. He forgives sin, chapter 9. He commands angels, chapter 13, chapter 24. He creates from nothing, chapters 14 and 15. He exerts his power over creation, chapter 8. He demonstrates omniscient knowledge, all-knowing knowledge, Matthew 20. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, chapter 12. He's the Lord of the temple, chapter 21. He is Lord over the long-dead King David and spoke to David a thousand years earlier, chapter 22. That's quite a claim. Yeah, I talked to David. I just was talking to him a thousand years ago or so. But to ignore the virgin birth of Christ is to ignore the deity of Christ and to ignore the deity of Christ is to miss him altogether. So the virgin birth is the only reasonable beginning of the ministry of God in the flesh. Well, this changed everything for Joseph. Verse 24, And Joseph got up from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. If you deny the virgin birth, you deny the authority of Scripture. If you deny the virgin birth, you deny the supernatural birth of the Savior. If you deny the virgin birth, you leave Jesus open to being a sinner. If you deny the virgin birth, you have no foundation upon which to believe the deity of Christ. If you cannot believe the deity of Christ, he cannot be your Savior. If he cannot be your Savior, you will spend all eternity in hell. The virgin birth isn't just some doctrine that stands off by itself with some sort of intellectual interest in it. It's bound inextricably to the person of Christ, to the work of Christ, to the ministry of Christ. It's bound to the gospel itself. So I have a question for you. Can a person deny the virgin birth and be a true Christian? No. If you say, I do not believe the virgin birth, then you will stand before the virgin-born one and give an account for your unbelief. But for us who do believe, who do worship the virgin-born Savior. How encouraging and how confidence-building is His virgin birth. Why is this so important? Because the one who stepped down out of eternity to become a baby is the very one you must rely upon when you step into eternity. The one who came out is the only one who can help you when you leave this world. So I don't know about you. I want a virgin-born Savior. I want a Savior who walks on water. I want a Savior who resurrects dead people. I want a Savior who heals thousands. I want a Savior who makes the mute to speak. I want a Savior who makes the deaf to hear. I want a Savior who makes the the blind to see. I want a Savior who makes the demon-possessed free. I want a Savior who can forgive sin at will. I want a Savior who, who calms storms. I want a Savior who can predict his own death and resurrection and raise himself from the dead because... I'm too chicken to face eternity without a Savior at that level. I want a Savior who was virgin-born and did all that other stuff. 
Because I don't want to die. But if I have to die, isn't it good to know that we have a Savior that strong who will take you and to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. So give me the virgin birth. Give me walking on water. Give me turning uh, water into wine. Give it all to me. I need it all. I need it all. And so do you. Let's pray together and then we'll transition to the Lord's table. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is so utterly clear and so utterly profound for us. And our Father, we now move to a time of really beauty and solemnity and sobriety in worshiping our Savior Christ. As we think about the the Lord's table, we think about his body and his blood, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. We would ask you, Lord, to bless this time of worship that we have together. We pray in Christ's name, amen.